Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. Hello. From KCRW, I'm Steve Erickson. As a novelist and professor at the University of California, Riverside, I want to welcome you to a special series, A Bookworm Retrospective, a celebration of 33 years of bookworm on KCRW. As those of you familiar with bookworm know, the host of the show is Michael Silverblatt, who's been on leave for health reasons. I met Michael more than three decades ago on the first of half a dozen occasions when I had the pleasure, like many other authors, of coming on to Bookworm to talk about my work, including novels such as Zeroville and Shadowbond. Bookworm was first broadcast in 1989 after the manager of KCRW at the time, Ruth Seymour, met Michael at a dinner party where they talked many hours about poetry and literature. Ruth wound up offering Michael a book show on the spot, and while he was reluctant at first, he went on to become the host of Bookworm and to record more than 1,600 conversations with poets and authors of literary fiction. Among his first guests was the American novelist and man of letters, Gore Vidal. Hi, this is Michael Silverblatt, and this is Bookworm. We're doing a special show from the Beverly Hills Hotel, where my guest is Gore Vidal, whose new novel, Hollywood, the sixth in a series of novels about American history, has just arrived from Random House. These are very American novels, and you've spoken against a certain tradition, a romantic tradition in American literature, while favoring um, the Edith Wharton Henry James, William Dean Howell's tradition. Are you the only living embodiment of that tradition, to your knowledge? Well, what a powerful adjective you have there in the word living. Uh, I am extant, anyway, uh, as a writer. I don't think I would... I stem from, I suppose... James and Wharton and Howells. I certainly do not come from the line of Melville and uh, Hawthorne. So 25 years ago, quite by accident, let me tell you, I began to sort of redream the American uh, Republic from 1776 up to about 1960. Out of that came six novels, and I have never until now let on what I was doing, it's one long book, but I was not about to announce anything so grandiose. First of all, one might have died, lost one's energy, whatever, and not finished it. Well, I have finished now. And the story is there through the eyes of one family. Set in history, you see the history of the Republic. We set ourselves up as a, an extraordinary experiment, and people were intrigued by this country. Uh, we responded to necessities and we became an empire which corrupted us totally. And now we are living in the wreckage of that empire. This does not make me sad. I hate 
the American empire. And I love the idea of the old American republic. I see now in our decline and our collapse a possibility for a phoenix-like return that I think we still have the energy, and unlike the old guard wasps, I quite like the floods of immigration, I think, with all this mix of Hispanic and Chinese. Now, I remain someone passionately interested in that by now somewhat arcane thing, the novel. But it's not just the novel that people are claiming is dead. You know, read essays about what is happening to movies and movie studios. It's claimed that the audience for movies is disappearing and the kind of movies that are being made are being made for audiences that, you know, are no longer audiences. They're age constituencies. So they say that movies are dead. They say that musical comedy is dead. They say that opera is dead. They say that dance is dead. One comes to the conclusion that what they're saying is that culture is dead. And one wonders, how did so much death accumulate in the same place? They don't say that stamp collecting is dead. Well, it uh, was pretty clear that we are a mercantile nation. Everything is bottom line. I mean, I flick through television every now and then. Every other word I hear in the commercials is money, savings. Do you want to turn your your savings into 5%? I mean, it's just nothing but money all the time. A sign of great sickness for the movies. They brought it on themselves in many ways. but They don't deserve what has now happened to them, which is due to our totally corrupt media. They write only about the budgets of movies. So everybody knows how much uh, the Titanic costs or this this picture costs, that picture costs. Will it make it back in the first weekend? Well, who gives a damn? I mean, either you want to see it or you don't. And if you don't, don't want to go, don't go. But now everybody's an expert uh, accountant trying to figure out the bottom line. Well, if this isn't the sickest society... I mean, it's beyond any, it's not a civilization. It's a vicious marketplace, and we get, we deserve the junk we get. That was Gore Vidal talking with Michael Silverblatt in 1990, voicing his concern about the future of culture. In 2004, Nobel Prize laureate Doris Lessing had a different viewpoint. Today, I am honored to be talking to Doris Lessing, who is at the BBC House in London, the BBC Broadcasting House in London, England. She is the author, most recently, of a group of novellas, a quartet of novellas called The Grandmothers. It's published here by HarperCollins Publishers. She is, of course, the author of many books that have really influenced, changed, startled, reported on the culture, The Grass is Singing, The Golden Notebook. The Grandmothers is, as I've said, a group of four novellas. And it seemed to me, Doris, that there was the theme of the concern of an older set for the younger ones, whether it be that those younger ones be able to take care of them 
failed to take care of them, but it seemed to be very much a book of one generation's plans for the next. Uh, about the concern for the younger generation, um, I certainly feel it, as I'm sure all our con- my contemporaries do. I wanted to chronicle that um, time in, in Britain of um, summer schools and um, music schools and theatre schools and God knows what it were going on all over the country uh, before the Second World War. This was the end of a culture, unfortunately. It was a popular culture. Part of it was uh, aggressively political, part of it wasn't. But it affected enormous numbers of uh, young men who, and young women, of course, who would later be fighting. And I met them, not in India, of course, I wasn't there, but they were in southern Rhodesia and the RAF. They were very politically conscious. They read, they were interested in poetry, the modern poets. And um, that culture has completely gone. It's absolutely disappeared, which is a great pity, you know. It's very easy to slip into this, oh, my God, look what the world is coming to. And I do spend quite a bit of time wondering where in the world Something is being born that we don't recognize. You know, this um, slouching towards Bethlehem to be born poem of Yeats is what I'm thinking of. Tell me, do do you never amuse yourself by thinking where in the world, not noticed yet, is a new thing being born? Don't you ever think like that? Because it is very obvious that so many things are played out, worn out, We're coming to the end of something. But somewhere else, you see, something is being born. It must be, because it always is. It's probably very rough, you know, a rough beast, a rough beast slouching. It's not something pretty, perhaps, probably something very clumsy. But it's there and full of vitality, and I wonder where it is. Don't you think like that? Of course, but aren't you also afraid of its vitality sometimes? Well, you see, I'm going to die quite soon. That's all right. Other people can cope with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it can be born as long as you're not around to see it, eh? Well, I shall observe from some little pink cloud with much interest what this thing is. And I think, my God, how is it I didn't see it? This is my, probably will be my thought. That was novelist Doris Lessing. Early on as host of Bookworm, Michael befriended David Foster Wallace. Wallace was part of a group of rising young American novelists that came to recognize Michael as America's Reader Laureate, who always understood that reading isn't just an act of the mind, but of the spirit. Here's Wallace discussing his novel, Infinite Jest. Something came into my head that may be entirely imaginary um, which seemed to be that the book was written in fractals expand on that it occurred to me that the way in which the material is presented allows for a subject to be announced in a small form then there seems to be a fan of subject matter, other subjects, and then it comes back in a second form 
containing the other subjects in small and then comes back again as if what were being described were, and I don't know this kind of science, but it, it, it just, I said to myself, this must be fractals. It's, I've, I've heard you were an acute reader. Um, that's that's one of the things structurally that's going on. It's actually um, it's actually structured like something called a Sierpinski gasket, which is a very primitive kind of pyramidical fractal. Although what was really what was structured as a Sierpinski gasket was the first um, was was the draft that I delivered to Michael in '94, and it went through some I think mercy cuts. So it's probably kind of a lopsided Sierpinski gasket now. But it's interesting. That's one of the that's one of the structural ways that it's supposed to kind of come together. Michael is Michael Peach, the editor at Little Brown. What is a Sierpinski gasket? It would be almost. Imp- I, I would almost have to show you. It's it's kind of a design that um, that a man named Sierpinski, I believe, developed. It was quite a bit before the introduction of fractals um, and before any of the kind of um, technologies that fractals are a real useful metaphor for. Um, but it looks basically like a pyramid on acid. A lot of the structure in there is kind of seat of the pants. What kind of felt true to me and what didn't a lot of the I, I did not sit down with you know i'm going to do a fractal structure or something mm-hmm. i don't think i'm that kind of writer so there aren't diagrams or the diagrams emerged as you went along uh well i had i mean i've got a poster of a serpinski gasket that i've had since i was a little boy that i like just because it's pretty um but it's real weird i mean there's i think writing is a big blend of uh there's a lot of sophistication and there's a lot of kind of idiocy about it. And so much of it is gut and this feels true, this doesn't feel true, this tastes right, this doesn't. And it's only when you get about halfway through that I think you, you start to see any sort of structure emerging at all. Then, of course, the great na- nightmare is that you alone see the structure and it's going to be a mess for everyone else. Well, what, what thrilled me about the book is that around 200 pages in, what I felt about it was that it, just began to get better and better and better. I started to like it more and more and look forward to going back to reading it and felt a kind of, um, I don't know, tenderness toward it, toward both its character and its narrator um, because of the extraordinary effort that was going into writing it. It didn't seem like difficulty for difficulty's sake. It seemed like immense difficulty being expended because something important about how difficult it has become to be human needed to be said and that there weren't other ways to say that. I feel like I want to ask you to adopt me. (laughs) Because, yeah, I mean, this is the great nightmare um, when you're doing something long and hard is... um, is you're terrified that it will be perceived as gratuitously hard and difficult. When I was in my 20s, like what I really believed was that the point of fiction was to show that the writer was really smart. And it sounds terrible to say, but I think looking back, that's what was going on. And uh, I don't think I really understood what loneliness was when, when I was a young man. And, and now I've got a much less clear idea of what the point of art is, but I think it's got something to do with loneliness and something to do with setting up a conversation between human beings. And I know that when I started this book, I wanted to, I, I had very, I had very vague and not very ambitious ambitions. And one was I wanted to do something really sad. I'd done comedy before. I wanted to do something really sad and I wanted to do something about what was sad about America. And, um, 
there's a there's a fair amount of of weird and hard technical stuff going on in this book. But I mean, one reason why I'm willing to go around and talk to people about it, and that I'm sort of proud of it in a way I haven't been about earlier stuff, is that I feel like whatever's hard in the book is in service of something that at least for me is good and important. And it's embarrassing to talk about because I think it sounds kind of cheesy. Um, I, I, I sort of think like all the way down kind of to my butthole, I was a different person coming up with this book than I was about my earlier stuff. And I'm not saying my earlier stuff was all crap, you know, but it's just, it seems like, I think when you're very young and until you've sort of, uh, you know, faced various darknesses, um, it's very difficult to understand how, how precious and rare the sort of thing that, that art can do is. That was David Foster Wallace speaking with Michael Silverblatt on Bookworm. I'm Steve Erickson. And we'll be back after this short break. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. This is Steve Erickson with the first of a series of shows celebrating 33 years of Bookworm, produced and hosted by Michael Silverblatt. Recognizing the diversity of American literature, Michael frequently hosted poet and memoirist Maya Angelou. Today I have the very great honor to have with me Dr. Maya Angelou, and her new book is the completion of her autobiographical sequence that began, of course, with I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and continued with Gather Together in My Name, Singing and Swinging and Getting Merry Like Christmas, The Heart of a Woman, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, and now a song flung up to heaven. And one of the things that I can't help but notice that's quite extraordinary and beautiful about your presence is how mannerly it is. And I was very interested in knowing how you developed such a commanding and gracious public presence. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I was raised by a grandmother, me too. <laughs> My goodness, that makes us probably twins separated at birth. <laughs> Identical. Uh, there's so much that one gets from the grandmother and grandfather, if you have that. I had the grandmother and my uncle, who were her only other sibling than my father. And uh, her only other child, my father's sibling. And... Uh, they were mannered people, not just mannerly, but Southern black people are mannered generally. And uh, we call people by, with appellations suggesting familial relationships. So there's brother, sister, Bubba, Tudor, Tootie, uh, there's cousin, 
auntie, uncle, hanka. Uh, so this was originated, I think. Well, I know it originated in Africa. But during slavery, um, black people could be called anything by slave owners. And even after slavery in work situations, people could just rename folks. If a person's real name was Phoebe, um, if the mistress or the woman who was hiring her chose to call her something else, she'd just say, I'm going to call you Mary. I'm going to call you Wanda because you remind me of the last maid I had. So while the name is very important mm. with African Americans and the ways in which the name is adorned. So um, a person could be called out of her name at work, but when he reached church or the black community, people said, oh, hello, Uncle Andy. Hello, Brother Jim. Hello, Sister Annie. Hello, Cousin Tom. And so, so the manners, I don't mean just courtesy, but the main, the way of behaving, the modus operandi, uh, determined a kind of orderliness. You've said many times about the biographies that one must tell the truth. One doesn't tell every truth, but one chooses the truth one is going to tell, and one remains truthful while telling it. And it seems as if these books are the products in every way of a decision about presentation. I think in particular of the opening of The Heart of a Woman. It is a presentation of Miss Billie Holiday, yeah. who is arriving at the apartment in Laurel Canyon of Dr. Angelou. She is bloated. She is elderly. She is drug-addicted and sometimes coarse. She speaks to Dr. Angelou's son, Guy, in the way that it's appropriate to speak to a young person. So we find out that Billie Holiday still has inside her the ability to answer to the occasion. Exactly. And the book presents in its opening chapter a set of values about self-presentation put at the beginning of the book that is going to be about one's self-presentation to the world as a writer. And this is why it's a parable. My gosh. I could wish that you were reviewing my books for publication. I thank you for this time, but particularly I thank you for listening. See, because you listen, you have heard some of what I meant to offer. Um, some people think I'm in, I must be a an easy writer, um, so that some critics say, Maya Angelou has a new book, and of course it's good, but then she's a natural writer. Being a natural writer 
It's like being a natural open-heart surgeon, <laughs> offshore oil driller. <laughs> a minute. Um, to write really well, one has to have listened and become familiar with the language. And then to try to say it as Jacques Barzun encourages us, say it plain and simply. Now, the philosophers say that sophistication is starting at simpleness, running the gamut through all the affectations, and returning to utter simplicity. Now, to, to achieve that is, uh, is no small matter. I wanted to ask you if you could talk about places like the Harlem Writers Guild or before it historically like Karamu that mm -hmm. have nurtured yes. a lot of talent. I learned a lot from the writers, from those I met and those I've never met. I've learned a lot from those who died before I came along and those who were alive but I never met. I guess my greatest teacher has always been, still is, James Baldwin. He just knows the language. He just does. And he's able to take a few nouns and pronouns and adjectives and some adverbs and verbs and ball them all together and throw them against the wall and make them bounce. Well, anyone, I think, would envy you the experience of having James Baldwin counsel you on how to play the White Queen in <laughs> Chenet. You know, it's a, I mean, I would have, you know, if you had a tape recorder. <laughs> <laughs> he was so funny and so brilliant, and we loved each other a lot. And I'm just always lonely for him. Well, it's interesting because the newest book, A Song Flung Up to Heaven, is almost, well, why is it flung up to heaven? Because so many friends are there. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, people are kind of wondering about the title, but this is Malcolm X, James Baldwin, your brother, your mother. And this grandma. is, yeah, this is a book that is for another world. That's right. That's right. All of, you see, I think that that title enwraps the whole series and all of that series about all of those people, about the times in which I've lived, the times I've lived, the, the events I have either seen or, or participated in, all of that, I fling it up to heaven with the hope, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. I've been speaking with Dr. Maya Angelou, author most recently of A Song Flung Up to Heaven. Thank you very much for coming Thank and talking. Thank you very much, Mr. It's been a pleasure. You're the best. Thank <laughs> This has been the first of a series of bookworm retrospectives celebrating 33 years of conversations with writers and poets by Michael Silverblatt on KCRW. 
The show was produced by Connie Alvarez and Alan Howard. The engineer is PJ Shahamet. I'm Steve Erickson, and I thank you for honoring my friend Michael, whom Norman Mailer once called the greatest reader of literature in the world. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she's a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.